0: With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit CommonwealthClub.org special to get special rates on membership. listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Inforum SF.
1: Hello, and uh, welcome to today's session, the virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Fred Blackwell, and I'm the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, which is dedicated to creating a Bay Area where everyone can find a good job, uh, live in a safe and affordable home, and exercise their political voice regardless of their race or their zip code. I am very uh, excited today to be with uh, two fabulous women uh, and leaders uh, to kind of talk about uh, today's events. I, When I was thinking last night, uh, you two, about uh, what I wanted to say to frame this conversation, it suddenly dawned on me that this moment actually needs no introduction. <laughs> that we are in a, a unique moment. We've been in it for a long time in 2020. And I know some of us thought that 2021 would bring a, a little bit of less craziness to it. But if the first two weeks of the year are, uh, any sign, it seems like we're still, uh, in store for quite a roller coaster. Um, So I really just want to get right to it. Uh, And uh, as Crystal said, we are uh, joined today by Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who, among many things, uh, has proposed the establishment of a truth, racial healing, and transformation committee. Uh, We'll talk a little bit uh, about that. And Alicia Garza, uh, co-creator of Black Lives Matter movement and principal at the Black Futures Lab. And we're going to Uh, explore a variety of things that are happening right now, including uh, the the things that happened last week and over the last couple of weeks, but also look a little bit uh, into the future. Uh, If you would like to ask us a question, please enter that in the chat section of the live stream, and we will uh, get to as many as possible uh, at the end of the program. But as I said, let's uh, really get started. I have uh, so many questions and uh, I'm sure the audience does as well, but I'd like to Uh, Start with you, Congresswoman Lee, and and really have two questions for you. Um, One is, what was it like on January 6th being in the building uh, as all of that mischief and mayhem was occurring? Uh, And how on earth did we get there?
0: Well, thank you, Fred. Really happy to be with you uh, today. It feels like I'm home, even though uh, I'm not. (laughs) I'm on the East Coast, but uh, I'm really pleased to to join with you, and my sister Alicia, who um, continues to speak truth to power in the day, right now. Uh, It's so important that uh, this discussion take place uh, with Alicia, especially in your moderating, Fred, and with the Commonwealth audience, because um, so much of what has taken place has historical context. So much is related to what the Movement for Black Lives, what Black Futures Lab has been fighting for forever, and so much of what I have been fighting for all of my life and all of our lives as it relates to African-Americans, especially and people of color. And so uh, what was it like January 6th? Well, I am uh, I was on the floor of Congress in the chamber. There were about 11 Democrats. Uh, it, the speaker asked the leadership team to come to the floor to be there when Vice President Pence uh, went through the certification process of the Electoral College. And uh, let me just say, backing up a little bit, how unprepared the command was of the Capitol Police. And fortunately, Speaker Pelosi uh, made sure that they're no longer there. But I knew something was going to go down. And I share this story because I, it's important as a Black person for me to, to say how much we know about white supremacy. I know these groups. Uh, I know who they are. They've terrorized the Black community forever. Black people have been living under domestic terrorism for 401 years. Just remind you of the bomb blast that killed four little girls in Birmingham, Alabama. So we know this. So I've been, uh, and with Donald Trump for five years, I mean, we've known who he was. He campaigned on uh, racist, racist rhetoric, white supremacy agenda. Uh, and um, he, he came into the White House with Steve Bannon, Gorka, Steve Miller, who, who developed this white supremacist agenda to be put forth as part of his policy and put forth as to take over the federal government, quite frankly. So we know who he is. So I had been listening to him for five years, and especially after the election, were closely. You, you didn't write anything he has ever said off, but also knowing what the white supremacist groups were saying, reading their words, reading their websites, knowing who they were. So... I share that because I put on tennis shoes that day. I knew something was going to go down. I just knew it. Okay? Didn't know what, but I knew it. Now, I've been in harrowing situations before. I almost stepped on a cluster bomb abroad in the Middle East. I've been close to where there were assassination attempts on people I know. I've just barely made it out of that. I was in the Capitol, 9-11, and had to evacuate. I was sitting there when we were told a plane might be coming in, and that was Flight 93. I had on heels that day, (laughs) and I had to run out, run up Pennsylvania Avenue, and it was really hard with those high heel shoes on, and so on January 6th, I said, I'm wearing tennis shoes today. Now, being there, so I'm ready, thinking something's going to happen, never knowing what, but we were told, uh, and, and I looked at my phone, and people were texting me saying that the Cannon building had been overtaken, and we heard noise, and so I knew we were about something's about to happen. So finally, we were told um, locks, we're in lockdown. Uh, the security capital police started taking out, uh, making sure Nancy got out of there and uh, we couldn't leave. Then we were told, um, you know, get out your gas mask. And That may sound a little uh, unusual, but I live with gas masks every day. You know, I know gas masks. It's okay, well, I'll take out my gas mask but I had forgotten how to open it up because we hadn't had any recent training. So Eric Swalwell and I were there sitting there trying to say, okay, will you pull it this way or you pull it that way? So that was, (laughs) finally got it out. So the, and security people saying, hurry up. We don't know if you need to put it on, but we know they've got um, tear gas and all this other stuff. And I looked at my phone and saw they were in statuary hall right in back of us. And so someone told me, I said, no, wait a minute, I can't remember. How do you put this thing on? So, (laughs) Someone showed me how to put it on, but they showed me, and when I saw the footage later of the members who actually put it on, who were in the gallery, the instructions I got was to put it on backwards, (laughs) and I had to put it on, I would have had it on backwards, okay? So then we um, were told, wait a minute, wait a minute, Um, you might have to hit the ground. You might have to go down on the floor, because these people, we could hear them coming. I said, "Uh uh-oh, yeah. I know why I wore my tennis shoes. So we could hear him coming. So then after a few minutes, the chaplain went up to the um, podium and said a prayer. <laughs> and Eric and I looked at him and said, yeah, okay, we know. If the chaplain's up there saying a prayer, yeah, this is serious. So finally, we got an order to evacuate to an undisclosed location. And, you know, I said, oh, God, here we go. Because now we're under attack, under siege, not quite sure what's going on. When we have all of these Republicans, many of whom won't wear masks. They just refuse. And it was like, oh, boy, this is going to be a pandemic upon a pandemic upon a super spreader event and the whole nine yards. So I was trying to, of course, everyone's crowded, and I'm trying to find some space, but we had a narrow staircase. is way down. And so finally, um, we got to the end of where we had to make a turn and just show you how, how the command forces were, uh, who supervises the police force, one set of uh, police officers said, go this way, another set go that way. I said, okay, now, which way do we go? Now, and during that time, you know, I am the type of person who, uh, I, you know, I'm not like laid back, but I know adrenaline kicks in and you have to be very focused because this is survival. And Black people know when you have to survive, which we have to do each and every day. We draw in something that a lot of people don't know we have. So I'm in survival mode. And he says, this way, this way. Okay, think this one through real quick. Where you know, and, and so I had my little calculation in survival, but which way to go, which I was right. <laughs> the rest of me had to follow. So finally got there. And then we were in this lo- location with no windows or anything. And um, that, that's when the super spreader event <laughs> occurred where members, of course, contracted the virus. Lisa Blunt Rochester tried to get them, you've seen footage of her trying to get them to wear a mask. They wouldn't do that. And we're trying to figure out where's the National Guard, what's going on. And everything was just delayed, delayed, delayed. And people were getting uh, pretty anxious. And actually, some of our colleagues tweeted out and did a radio and inter- a TV interview from our location, from where we were when we were told uh, not to do that uh, because we couldn't let them know where we were. But some of our Republican colleagues just violated that that rule. And finally, let me just say the Black police officers, because I know the Black police force and have been, had a lot of stuff to deal with, the Black Capitol Hill, the, all of the Capitol Hill police officers responded in a way, the ones that weren't part of this conspiracy in a way that was professional and they were under such attack and they are really heroes and she the black police officers told me they said look congresswoman we had to make sure you all didn't get assassinated we were defending you we were defending our democracy we were defending the capital and we were defending ourselves because those White supremacists came after the black police officers with a vengeance. They said, and we were fighting for our lives. They said, we were in combat for two hours, three hours, fighting like we were in a war and being called the N word over and over and over again. And so many of the black police officers, you know, and we set up, we have a counseling and trauma program going on for anyone, but specifically for a lot of the police officers. And the black police officers felt like they were in a, a civil war. And they were protecting everybody and and had had at the same time having to defend themselves. So I'll stop there and just say um, it was um, a terrible moment. And uh, people who don't understand what domestic terrorism is, uh, who don't understand what white supremacy is, who don't understand what that man, who that man was in the white house as the leader of this cult now that has developed into an army of armed people, formerly military officers, police officers, and who knows who, they don't believe us, what black people have been saying all along. Maybe they believe it now, unfortunately. And so we've got to really uh, make sure that we look at white supremacy and systemic racism as one bucket because white supremacy leads to structural systemic racism, leads to black and brown people getting killed in the street during peaceful protests where the rules of the game are totally different.
1: Thank you, Congresswoman, for sharing that. I know it's probably tough to talk about. uh, And uh, thank you for your ongoing uh, leadership and commitment to, to justice. Alicia, I want to bring you into this conversation. Good to see you. Um, You know, uh, this summer, uh, you know, after the murder of George Floyd and so many things that we uh, saw, I know for me, uh, one of the things that was gratifying was to uh, see just protest and outrage uh, being displayed uh, at a level of scale and with a level of intensity uh, that I know that I had never seen in my lifetime and many people said they haven't seen uh, in decades Uh I think what we were all struck by, though, was not just the the hopefulness of seeing people take to the streets, but the other part of the imagery imagery that was frustrating was how at every turn uh, we saw how the folks who were fighting for justice uh, had to face just incredible pushback from law enforcement agencies at every level. Uh, And as mad and frustrated as I was to see uh, what was happening inside the Capitol, uh, it was like salt in the womb uh, to see uh, some of the Capitol police act in the way that they were and how different the response was uh, on that day uh, than the response uh, in communities around the country during uh, the summer and at the Capitol uh, during the summer. What was going through your mind uh, when you were looking at that given all the work that you've been doing around police accountability and trying to foster a different kind of relationship with law enforcement and Black people?
2: Well, first and foremost, it's so good to be here with you all. Hello to everybody at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Fred, for moderating this really important conversation. And of course, Congresswoman Lee is always a honor to share a stage with you. You know, the first thing I did, actually, when I saw what was happening at the Capitol building is I texted the congresswoman and I said, hey, what is going on over there? And are you OK? Because we were ready to turn up, too. Um, I will also say, though, that, you know, for me that day, um started out like a regular day. We were high, right, off of the um results of the Senate race in Georgia. And I think for me, I woke up that day feeling a sense of hope. And then by about 10 o'clock in the morning, that sense was not gone, but it was um shaky. And you know the thing that struck me in that moment, I saw what was happening on television, I was not there. However, I felt very strongly that um, this was expected. And it looked to me initially um, like a temper tantrum, which is actually, I think some of the character of it, it is a part of the backlash that has resulted from black communities and communities that have been left out and left behind really taking the time over this last year, this last four years, right, to build the kind of power needed to change the balance of power, to change the direction that this country is headed in. And so it was not a surprise to me to see uh, the storming of the Capitol. And I think what I was waiting for with bated breath was what would be the response. And the thing that was not surprising, but that I felt... Was important to be on display for the entire world to see. Was the disparate response and treatment. You know, I shared a video the other day. Um, you know, of 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 the guy who was wearing the kind of wolf hat. You know, in the chambers, and you know, there's another man who's on the floor and he's bleeding. And you know, there's a a, a white Capitol police officer who walks up to him and literally almost hands the man milk and cookies. He says, hey, you know, are you okay? Do you need medical attention? He says, you know, I'm just hoping that you guys will chill out in here. Uh, It's as if he's talking to, um, you know, a a five-year-old, right? And he's saying, okay, now be good. I'm gonna sit you in front of the TV and I, I just hope that you're okay. Now, we know that there is disparate treatment in terms of the Black Lives Matter protests, the protests that exploded across this nation. But I also think it's important for people to understand that um, there is disparate treatment happening in our communities, even when you're not seeing it on television. And I actually like these moments where we have uh, all of this on display because it is undeniable, and we can spin a bunch of stories about you know whose fault it is and why it happens and why it's justified. But at the end of the day, you can't deny what you see with your own eyes. And what we've seen with our own eyes for years now has been a, a, an attempt to delegitimize and discredit this movement that has really shaken the political landscape in this country in very, very important ways. You know, for me, when I think about what happened at the Capitol, I, I'm I'm just aware of the fact that it is important for us to zoom out and better understand why this was happening. You know, I've been texting the congresswoman for the past year, keeping her up to date on the death threats that I'm receiving every single day. Uh, You know, I've had the FBI visit my house this year uh, on a duty-to-warn visit, you know, talking about the fact that my name was found on an envelope in the home of a known white supremacist alongside uh, other elected officials. Uh, This problem of white nationalism and racial terror has been going on for a very long time, and it was happening prior to the Capitol, uh, and it will continue to happen unless we take A. Very sober look at what the um, intended impacts of this are, you know, Fred, at the end of the day, a lot of people look at what happened at the Capitol and they say, oh, that was the extreme right? That is an isolated incident. These are the, the craziest of the crazies. And I think it's important for people to understand that that's actually not it at all. Uh, these were people who run businesses. These were people who traveled to the Capitol specifically for this purpose. They are your neighbors. They are your bosses. They are your coworkers. Uh, th- maybe they are your family members. And it's important for people to understand that because, I think that too many of us look at racism and we say, oh, it's just a bunch of bad apples. It's a bunch of crazy people. Uh, but in fact, right, racism is about rigged rules. It has nothing to do with people's personalities. And so at the end of the day, we have had an administration that has been coddling this movement. In fact, they have moved this movement Into the government. We now have QAnon supporters in Congress. We have people who give open threats to Black Lives Matter governing our cities and our states and our nation. And at the end of the day, when they say they want to invalidate the results of the election, what they are saying is that they do not want Black people to have our votes counted, that actually the impact that Black communities had should be seen as invalid in terms of determining the direction of this country. That is an example of rigged rules. It's an example of the ways in which our communities are left out and left behind. And lastly, I'll just say that, you know, there were some very heroic people in the Capitol that day uh, who tried very, very hard to stop what was happening. But there's a bigger story here, which is that so many of these people that stormed that Capitol building, they weren't just business owners, they weren't just your neighbors or your friends or your family. Uh, They were either current or former members of law enforcement. And for a very long time, this movement has been talking about Uh, the ways in which uh, there has been an infiltration of law enforcement by white supremacist forces. The FBI has talked about this. The FBI designated last year and said that uh, white nationalists are the greatest threat to American democracy in a decade. And they warned us that this movement was growing. So it's important for us not to look at this as the exception to the rule and really to approach it as the rule itself, Only then can we figure out what the most appropriate solutions are to it.
1: Thank you. And if I could just stick with you for a second, Um, you talked about the differential treatment, the fact that uh, many of our law enforcement agencies had been infiltrated uh, uh, by these extremists and these white supremacists. For you, what are the implications of what we saw and how law enforcement did and did not respond on that day? for the broader efforts of police transformation?
2: Well, it's interesting because, you know, for the last decade almost, we've heard Blue Lives Matter as a a response to the cry for Black Lives to Matter. We have heard from law enforcement across the country uh, that there is now a culture uh, where law enforcement is disrespected and distrusted. And they put that at the feet of this movement. But I think what's important for us to just highlight is that, um, in fact, it is at their own feet. You know, there is an eroded trust in law enforcement, and that does not have anything to do with a demonization campaign. It has everything to do with the fact that law enforcement uh, enjoys special privileges in this country that civilians do not. And that is a huge problem as it relates to laws. When police commit crimes in our community, whether it be the murder of Oscar Grant, just a few blocks from my home, uh, or whether it be the murder of George Floyd, which was captured on television, we saw Officer Chauvin with his knee in the neck of a man who died in front of us, and he had his hand in his pocket while he was doing it. That is at the feet of law enforcement. That is not at the feet of this movement we have to start to unrig the rules and the stories that help support the rules. You know, in this country, police officers are untouchable and that has to change in order for trust to be rebuilt, if that is even possible. We cannot continue to allow a small group of people to be able to skirt the laws that they are supposed to enforce. That is the same problem that we dealt with with Donald Trump. And we have to be able to address that in a real way. You know, the other piece I think that is really clear is that, you know, from all of the things that we saw this summer, from Ahmaud Arbery, which was a a vigilante murder, to uh, Breonna Taylor, right, uh, which was a police murder, what we have to start to grapple with is, what is the role of police in our society? What are we asking police to do, and are they doing that? Are they equipped to do it? Are they being trained to do it? And are they doing it well? Where does public safety come from? Does it come from people patrolling our communities with guns and military grade weapons? Or does it come from communities having the things that they need to live well and to thrive? There are certain communities uh, in our nation that look like war zones all the time, and that is because of a deep devastation in community infrastructure with the lack of affordable and accessible housing, the lack of affordable and accessible health care, wages that are too low to support a family. And it is bolstered by the presence of unaccountable law enforcement in our communities. All of these things can be changed, but it takes political will and it takes political courage and it takes movements in order to help forward that change Brett, let me just respond
0: real quickly yeah. to something Alicia said so eloquently as she laid out the whole history of white supremacy within the last few years. She said they they warned us that they were one of they were the biggest threat right with the yeah. white supremacists, okay, but you know what they did? you know what the the justice department did after that. They set up a unit targeting, they called it Black identity extremists, okay, right. to, to harass, as Alicia said, and to really try to pull off another COINTELPRO. So out of the identifying the Black identity extremists, and, the, and I know this because Black Caucus has been dealing with this for the last four years, they set up a unit in the FBI to vamp to on and target Black identity, quote, extremists, which means peaceful protesters. That's their response.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, And let me stick with you for a minute, uh, Congresswoman. Both you and Alicia referred to the fact, actually, that while Wednesday was a low point, uh, it is actually bookended by the hopefulness that was associated with the outcome Tuesday and the, also the hopefulness that was associated with the uh, inauguration, uh, and and so let me just uh, you know when one of the things about the inauguration that was uh, you know remarkable and you mentioned it and i would, uh talk about it, is the fact that uh, Kamala Harris uh, is now our, our vice president, uh, first woman, first black woman, first Asian woman, uh, first woman the rock chucks on the campaign. Uh, Trail, uh, All of that. And, you know, I just want to read a tweet that you put out that said on this historic day, I'm wearing Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm's pearls given to me by her goddaughter who said that her godmother would not want it any other way because Shirley Chisholm, because I am Shirley Chisholm and because of Shirley Chisholm, Vice President Harris is. Can you talk about that move and what all this means? Gosh, well, first of all, as a woman
0: of faith, I just have to say, the light always outshines the darkness, okay? So we had some re- we've had had some really dark moments. And here we had, like uh, Alicia said, the elections in Georgia, then January 6th, okay? Uh, but w- we made it through that. <laughs> then we get to the threats around the inauguration, and they were, they're real. They were real. They're still real. Uh, we made it through that. And so the light is still shining. Okay. And Kamala is such a reflection of that here born in Oakland, raised in Berkeley, uh, a daughter of the East Bay. So I always say, uh, we're in the House now. We're in the White House. The East Bay is in the White House. And that is just so remarkable because I know, uh, by, it's almost said Senator Harris, Vice President Harris, and I've known her a long years and supported her through a lot, and we're friends. And um, she recognizes the importance of women and Black women especially who came before her, who had to fight like you would not believe. I mean, going back 401 years ago when we became when they brought us here as enslaved Africans, uh, and recognized it took all this time for a Black woman, a South Asian woman, a woman of color, to get to the White House. Shirley Chisholm ran for president. That's how I got involved in politics. She ran. I was a student at Mills College, head of the Black Student Union, and she took me to task, because I wasn't registered to vote. And from that day forward, I worked in her presidential campaign. We organized Alameda County, went on to Miami. Uh, I was at Shirley Chisholm Dell, and she mentored me and helped me throughout my life. And I, you know, she, uh, I saw her, I was working for our great beloved Ron Dellums. And so Shirley, I saw how she had to deal with misogyny and with racism and with sexism and people calling her crazy. She was the first black woman elected to Congress. She had to deal with all that stuff here on Capitol Hill. By herself. And she stood strong and she kept telling me, don't back down. You keep going. You know, these rules weren't made for us. They were, like Alicia said, rigged. They're made not for us. So we've got to get in there and shake things up and change the rules of the game. So she really influenced me a lot. And I know if it hadn't been for Shirley Chisholm, I would not be where I am today. And Kamala knows that also. And so those pearls that I wore were so, um, for me, so important because I felt her spirit because she, I know she was saying job well done, but it took us too long and you better not back down. You better keep fighting so that we could not only get on the inside women and black women, women of color, but you got to get in there and make some noise and transform this country. Shirley wasn't a person who said, tinker around the edges. She said, you go in there and change the system, change those rigged rules. And so that day was so, for me personally, because, you know, I supported Kamala when she ran for president. Uh, and I was the first member of Congress to do that. I went all over the country fighting and with people about why she should run. And I saw, though, women, women of color. And in the South, I saw a lot of white people, white Southerners, talk about Kamala and come su- to her campaign and support her. So I knew then that uh, she had a, a bright future and that uh, this is where she, this is her trajectory. So Shirley Chisholm was smiling. She was with us that day uh, and she was happy, but she said, look, we've come so far, but it took 50 years. Now let's keep going.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Alicia, uh, you were, you referred to Tuesday and your hopefulness associated with Wednesday morning and you know that was a that was hopefulness and uh and celebration not just about the outcome but about the process uh and we know that it was the product of years if not decades of hard work from organizers on the ground uh engaging in advocacy and leadership development and, and all that kind of stuff and the hard work that went into that and We know that you have been involved in that kind of shoulder to the wheel work for decades now. Um, And you referred to the fact that the FBI had to come to your home and you've gotten death threats. How do you kind of maintain your hopefulness uh, and your fortitude? uh, And what do you draw on to keep your strength during all this work?
2: Well, I too am a woman of faith. And so for me, it's my spiritual convictions that help me keep going. But also what I know for a fact is that if we weren't doing something of consequence, I would be being left alone. (laughs) Nobody Nobody is sending death threats to people who are not interrupting right? The status quo. And so I try to remind myself of that. Uh, and I appreciate the Congresswoman for continuing to remind me of that. So when I, I will say, these people are nuts. she say, well, they wouldn't be crazy if you weren't shaking things up. <laughs> so I really do appreciate that. But I will also say this, you know, one of the things that keeps me going is learning how to identify when it is that we're winning, And this last four years has been really, really hard. It's the hardest on record, at least in my lifetime. And there were several points where it just felt painful to try to put one foot in front of the other. And what I have learned is that, you know, it's not just about faith in the things that you can't see. It's about acknowledging, right, when we have uh, moved the needle. And I do, I hear a lot of people uh, saying things like, well, it's not everything that we wanted. And it's not quite as much enough as the things that we wanted. But here's the thing. We did some amazing work and we're just getting started. We changed the balance of power in the United States Senate. That is huge. We won a incredible victory in Georgia, several of them, frankly, uh, where we literally expanded the electorate in a state that was has been... Um, uh, 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 hamstrung, right, by people who do not want to see progress. And in the face of that, right, we prevailed. We turned out more people than almost any other time in history, not just to vote, but to say, this democracy belongs to you, and it only works if you take responsibility for it, too. And on top of that, right, we are continuing to change the narrative around who belongs, who deserves to have dignity. And we are steadfast in that. And we are relentless in that. And so for me, part of the way I'm able to keep going, part of the way I'm able to remain hopeful is to be able to zoom out and say, what has all of this hard work and all of these hard days amounted to? And I will say to you 100%, I cried during the inauguration. I cried knowing that there's a ton more work to do. I cried knowing (laughs) that they are going to disappoint us and that is a fact. But I also cried knowing that we are building the kind of infrastructure that is strong enough to withstand all of that and still be victorious. So for me, it is about being able to identify when it is that we are winning. And as a mentor of mine used to say, you have to understand if you are having problems of growth or problems of decay. And I really believe that our movement right now is having problems of growth and certainly not problems of decay.
1: Oh, wow. That is so inspirational to hear you speak with that level of hopefulness for, for both of you all. Uh, I mean, there obviously is a sense of relief that we have a responsible adult in the white house now. Um, And, and I think you guys would both agree that that doesn't mean the work is done. So for, for both of you, if you could talk a little bit about like, for those of us who are like fighting for justice, what is needed now? uh, And what do you project in terms of like for movement uh, organizers and movement builders? What, what's, what's in store for us in the next four years? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I think uh, accountability, first of all, and mm-hmm. and I think uh, Alicia laid out the fact very modestly. But I say it was the movement for black lives. It was young people who won these elections and they changed the course and the trajectory of this country. And so we have to make sure that uh, we hold the administration Accountable because I think they're doing a, a. They started out doing a, a very good job in laying out their agenda, but we've got to keep pushing hard, and only that will happen if our democratic process of petitioning our government and of our First Amendment rights of protesting of, of holding uh, congressional members, all elected officials, the president, and the White and the Vice President accountable, because they they one, on an agenda there was an agenda for truth and justice. And uh, they can't turn around now, but we know how politics is. And so we have to just make sure that um, we keep going. We keep fighting. We keep pushing. Don't let up. It's now's the time to really uh, be very assertive, be very focused, and be very clear on our work for the people because that's what they have to do is be accountable to the people. Mm
2: -hmm. I agree with that 100 percent. And, you know, uh, this last year we designed at the Black Futures Lab, we've talked about this tons on this stage, a document called the Black Agenda 2020. It is a roadmap, a legislative roadmap for how it is that we make Black Lives Matter from City Hall to Congress. We want to make sure that that agenda is implemented and we will continue to be relentless in making sure that we are setting the floor for what racial justice looks like in this country. We also want to make sure that we are not abandoning and forgetting about the fights that are ongoing that we still have not won. Uh, you know, I'm I'm aware, right, that in my city, uh, that there is a push, a renewed push, uh, to ensure that there is justice for Oscar Grant and for his family, uh, and there is a push to try and uh, encourage and strengthen District Attorney Nancy O'Malley to reopen that case, so that the officers who were involved in Oscar's death can be held accountable, and so that we can actually turn the page. Wanda and Uncle Bobby have not been able to turn the page because uh, the the accountability has not been there in, the, in that case. And so uh, I, I want us to keep looking forward, but I also want us to remember that there are still things that are undone, uh, and they are undone right in the cities that we live in. You don't have to look to Minneapolis or uh, Louisville, Kentucky to figure out where justice needs to occur. Justice needs to occur Right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, And that's not just related to Oscar Grant. That's certainly related to uh, the family of Mario Woods, the family of Kenneth Harding, uh, and so many more who never make national news, right, but certainly are a product of these kinds of rigged rules that need to be undone and this kind of power, right, that needs to be transformed. So that is something that I think we need to continue to focus on when we talk about police accountability, when we talk about criminal system reform. There are so many laws and policies, not just in the nation, but in our states, that really prevent that kind of accountability from happening. And so um, it is important to kind of dig into our own backyards and change what's happening here so that we can be a light and a beacon for the rest of the country in terms of how to really bring justice yeah. forward.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned our backyard, uh, you know, at. Uh, Congresswoman, you mentioned that we got the East Bay and the White House. we got the two of you uh, with Bay Area roots that are strong. Uh, We have so many uh, Black women who are providing leadership who are from the Bay. You know, I could just go. Our friend, uh, Latifah Simon, uh, you know, my mother, Angela Glover Blackwell, London Breed from the Bay Area. So, you know, I have to use a little bit of facilitator's license here as a uh, Son of Oakland, myself, and just ask y'all the question, like, what's in the soil in the Bay Area and in Oakland, in the East Bay, that is producing these Black women leaders that, that are just changing the world?
0: <laughs> Lisa, you want to go first?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly are blessed to have a long legacy of freedom fighters who um we don't just read about in books, right? These are our neighbors. These are our friends. These are our family members. You know, it's really beautiful in the Bay Area to be able to run into Angela Davis at the grocery store or uh, run into my sister Erica Huggins at the doctor's office, right? I mean, these folk who have put so much on the line are still around, and they're around to let us know when we're not doing the right thing, and they are around to let us know when we are doing the right thing. So I'm not sure if it's in the soil or in the water or in the air or in the music, because there is just something about the bay that is very, very unique, and I can tell you that from having traveled all over the world. But I also think that it is the intentional, uh, the intentionally built infrastructure that still lives on. We don't look at the Black Panthers as something that happened long ago, right? We don't look at the Black freedom struggle as something that happened long ago. It is still very much alive and well, and it is defended here uh, in in this community. That's what I think. Congresswoman, how about you? Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, you're you're absolutely right. And I think this is, is the historical context is so important because the Bay Area I mean, you think back and, and look back at our history. Uh, black people came out here uh, to work you know, in the shipyards. I mean, there's a history. C.L. Dellums, leader of the Brotherhood, uh, uh, train, you know, the train car porters, uh, Brotherhood. Uh, you have freedom fighters who fought uh, in the Civil Rights Movement when we had our own progressive civil rights movement. You look at Ron Dellums. Ron was the father of coalition politics you look at uh, the fact that we in my for instance my congressional district I've never had a majority black district but we have had to work with our allies and form coalitions and and we've never lost sight of the fact that it's out of the struggle of african americans that Black women and men in the Bay Area have have kept that struggle going. And I, the Black Panther Party, like Alicia said, you know, I was a community worker with the Black Panther Party. I mean, and I've been like dogged to, when I was in the legislature uh, for being, you know, a quote communist, they, they relate that to the Black Panther Party, you know, but I wouldn't let them do that uh, <clears throat> here in Congress, you know, first it's like, Oh, communist sympathizer, you know, uh, Coming from the Bay Area, you're a socialist. I mean, I've been on every list you and had every kind of court case you would not believe. But we stand firm because we know we're on the right side of history. But now I have to tell you, everyone's looking at us. Like, how are y'all doing it? How are you dealing with immigration issues? How are you have you been able to be in coalition with others? Even though it's a struggle because our population and Black community is not that great. But we still lead on progressive issues. And I think with Alicia and with our People, younger uh, women, black women who are coming along and black men also and the justice, the, the justice spirit. It, it's a continuum. And I don't think any of us who've been around a while worry <laughs> about anybody uh, taking over because I feel really good that we have a heck of a lot of black folks in the Bay Area whose consciousness is such it's it's a justice It's a freedom. It's an equality consciousness that permeates everything that we do. And so now, again, the rest of the world looks at us and and says, we want to look like you. We want to do what you've done. Because you all, even though you're in the midst of your own struggles, you seem to somehow keep moving forward. And uh, communities all over
1: the country now are
0: checking us out.
1: Thanks, y'all, for indulging me on that question. (laughs) Uh, Alicia, we're about to transition soon into uh, uh, Q&A, but I want to give you the opportunity to tell us, what is the Black Futures Lab? What are you guys cooking up in there? What are you doing?
2: (laughs) Oh, well, the Black Futures Lab is an innovation and experimentation lab that really looks at creative ways to engage Black people in the civic process and to make Black communities powerful in politics so that we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. We've done a number of projects leading up to today, including the largest survey of Black people in America in 156 years, the Black Agenda 2020, which more than 100,000 Black voters in nine states used to make their decisions about who should represent them up and down the ballot. We also launched a Black to the Future Public Policy Institute last year, where we trained 41 Black leaders in nine states how to write, win, and implement new rules in cities and states across the country. And moving forward into this year, we are taking some of the policy campaigns that were designed in that institute and we're investing in those campaigns to push them over the finish line. So, Congresswoman, you may be hearing from me shortly. Uh, well, that, <laughs> yeah, we, Lisa, we well really, I have
0: to just say, uh, Lisa has brought the Black Futures Lab agenda, agenda to the Congressional Black Caucus. OK, so that I mean, yeah, she's penetrated the halls of Congress with a policy agenda that that we are definitely uh, embracing. So thank you. <laughs>
1: And speaking of policy agendas, that's one of the first uh, questions that has come up here. It's for Representative Lee. What do you feel are the biggest legislative priorities uh, for this new administration? And how does the siege and impeachment impact or affect those priorities?
0: Well, the siege and the impeachment, uh, you, we have a job to do in the House and the Senate and the White House. So this division of labor has got to be made clear. We can't say... We give this man, a, Trump, a, a slap on the hand and he can go free. He has to be held accountable. The Senate has got to do its job and hopefully they will convict him. That's their job. That's not the president's job. That's the Senate's job. The president, and I think they've uh, shown us what their first hundred days uh, will look like. And it's it's got to be crushing this virus. People are dying each and every day or just hanging on by a thread because of their livelihood. Their lives and their livelihoods are at stake. And so coming up with the, the plan to crush the virus, and I'm working with them on that because you know we have disproportionate numbers of black and brown people dying and getting sick from the virus. And the economic impacts are more severe. So they've got a $1.9 trillion package that we're working on together to try to make sure that happens. And th- so that's the first 100 days. That's got to happen. But in the meantime, their there variety of buckets that they have, that they're working on. I'll just cite the racial equity and justice when um, Susan Rice is heading up, we met with her earlier, the domestic council, which is a council that um, is interagency. It deals with all the federal agencies and their priorities in terms of legislation and funding priorities. Racial equity is one of the, the biggest issue and they're looking at racial equity and justice in every single federal policy and program as we speak. And so for us, working with them with legislation on racial justice and equity on climate on economic recovery we have legislation to work with them on so it's a big job that biden that the biden harris white house has but members of congress especially members of the tri caucus the black hispanic asian pacific american and our two native americans soon to be one native american woman, because deb's going to be secretary of interior yes we're working with the biden administration to be sure that our voices, the voices of Black Futures Lab and the policies that, and I can tell you, Alicia, many of what you, much of what you have here, we're looking at. uh, I'm co-chairing with Cory Booker, the Domestic Policy Council team for the Black Caucus. So we're looking at that to get to the agencies. And so just know our work is just beginning on that front. So the Biden-Harris team, they got a lot on their plate, but we're putting a lot on their plate also to make sure that they move forward in a way that really closes a loop on our agenda.
1: Nice. Um, the second question is about voter suppression, and I think it's for both of you all. Uh, and it says, how does voter suppression engender white supremacy? And can we draw a connection between the disenfranchisement of black voters and the persistence of violence against black lives
2: absolutely i mean you just did it right there whoever asked that question <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for doing that um there's a long history of uh trying to prevent black communities from weighing in on the decisions that impact our lives and the whole rationale and reason for that, right, is the fear that if Black people were to weigh in on the decisions that are being made about us without us, that we would fundamentally transform the way that power operates in this country because we've been left out, because we have been kept out. And certainly this issue of racial terror, especially as it relates to voter suppression, uh, are it, it really goes hand in hand. And it is uh, it has a long history in this nation. I think it is important for us to understand as well um, that we need to undo, right, all of these rules that are preventing our communities from being as powerful as we should be. You know, this government is supposed to be of the people, by the people, and for the people, not of some people, not by some of us, and not for some of us. That is the whole point of democracy. And so I, I think as we continue to push for Um, More participation. We also have to pay a lot of attention to um, laws and policies that suppress votes, not just of Black people, but Indigenous people, poor people, uh, Latinx people, right? Women. Uh, There's a whole bunch of ways in which uh, the preventing of people from being able to weigh in on the decisions that impact their lives. Keep the re- keep the rigged the rules rigged in favor of people who have already consolidated power into the hands of a few. Our role is to bust that up so that more people have more power. That's really what it is that we're fighting for. And certainly, uh, uh, voting and the issue of elections and electoral power uh, is one of those places in which we need to weigh in pretty deeply.
0: January sixth manifested voter suppression in a big way, in a dangerous way. The denial of the fact that Biden and Harris won this election, the fact that they did not want to count or or value or recognize that these were black and brown votes for the most part in these states that they were trying to take away, the lies they told about this election, five people died as a result of this uh, attempted coup, All of this relates to voter suppression and the fact that it continues and it continues in a very violent way now. And it's the embodiment and and the well, it's the manifestation of white supremacy.
1: This one is for Alicia. Uh, When you and your sister started the Black Lives Matter movement back in 2013, did you imagine how much the movement would grow and become so synonymous with the fight for justice?
2: No, but I'm so glad it did. I'm so glad it did. And, you know, I, I've said many times that growing up, I always felt like I was born in the wrong era. You know, I had I'd read all of these books about all of this movement that had happened before I was alive, that actually brought me to this very place. And I always felt like, man, I will never see something like that in my lifetime. So I'm so grateful to be like the smallest piece of something that is so incredible and transforming the lives of millions.
1: Yes, Um, representative Lee, but I think both of you all could talk to this one. In Alameda last week, uh, a white gunman threatened mostly black protesters with officers supposedly uh, at the scene uh, and he still got away. How do we combat, uh, combat this racist double standard locally?
0: Alicia, you want to start out? <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, uh, we there are several people that we elect, right, to help ensure this level of accountability, and it's important for us to know when we vote, right, <laughs> what the responsibilities of these of these folks are, um, you know. I, have heard, I heard about this incident. I believe it was a, a, a protest at D.A. O'Malley's house, and there was a, a white man who came out in a mask with a rifle and threatened people. And this is literally the height of white supremacy. I can't walk out my front door with anything that looks like a rifle without not only having the police called on me, uh, but possibly right losing my life. Uh, and so it is important it's important to hear from our elected officials uh, like DA O'Malley uh, who's uh, you know whose neighbor this was uh, that that was not acceptable it's important for her to actually take a leadership role here in making sure that that does not happen again and that there is justice and accountability and then of course this also kind of leads into uh, uh, the conversation that we were having earlier about uh, not just disparate treatment, but about um, the lack of uh, rules, right, that um, are enforced equitably. And it is important. I don't think we can use jail for everything, right? (laughs) We can't just jail everybody that acts, acts wrong. But I do think that we need to set the tone. Um, and that is really up to uh, not just our elected officials, right, but it's certainly also up to each of us to um, uh, uh, ensure, right, that we're not that we don't continue to be quiet about these types of issues. So uh, that would be my way in on this. Congresswoman, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I would say the person who can I heard about this. Uh, I, I thought, what if this were an African-American? What, what would have happened? I know what would have happened, and so I think we have to again the racism that's embedded in every system in this country, and every policy, and every that allows something like this to happen, has to be not only examined but reimagined and and crushed and and dismantled, and build new a new world, a new order, new world in my congressional district. Also, we're not exempt from the uh, bad stuff. That happens as a result of, of systemic racism.
1: Thank you both. I'm told I have time to ask one more question, so I think I'll go with this one for you, Congresswoman Lee. What do you anticipate the outcome of the Senate impeachment trial will be? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, look, if they are, if they
0: want to uphold the Constitution, and if they do not be believe. That anyone is that no one is above the law. If they don't believe that no one is above the law, uh, or if they do believe that no one is above the law, then they should convict. Um, they should hold this trial and convict because this man. And 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 the second thing is the evidence is there. We know what he did to incite violence to uh, be an accessory to the five people who died. We know that. Um, that over the last four years, five years, he has set this up uh, and that he in many ways prompted them and encouraged them to do what they did. And you're gonna tell me that he's not going to be um, convicted when you convict black and brown young people for marijuana charges, you know, Uh, no. Uh, So I'm, you know, hopeful that all of the senators will uphold their constitutional responsibility and convict this man because he uh, committed acts of, of, uh, the, against the 14th Amendment and he committed acts that warrant him to be uh, convicted. And then I hope the criminal courts take over.
1: <laughs> um, so I'm told that it's tradition to close out these informs forums uh, with the same question. Uh, and the question is, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Uh, and I've been told that Alicia has asked, answered that question maybe 43 times over the course of the last year. So and I want
2: to hear her answer it first.
1: All right. <laughs> so we we will ask her first. Alicia.
2: So I'm going to do a new one, <laughs> a new 60-second idea. Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot about how it is that we uh, address some of the biggest challenges facing our country right now. And I really do believe that some of this is going to have to require big, bold, innovative legislation. So I know we have packages out there like justice and policing, which I think is an important start. Um, But I'm going to say my 60-second idea to change the world is to pass the Breathe Act, which I think is a comprehensive look at how it is that we invest in communities and divest from punishment, both as an economy and as a practice. All right.
1: Congresswoman
0: Lee. Okay, you got to tell me when 60 seconds is up. All right. My <laughs> idea, what I want to see is uh, two things. One is I want to see like 40 uh, some countries have established after genocides, crimes against humanity, slavery, my commission on truth, racial healing and transformation. I want to see this because it's time that the descendants of enslaved Africans and other people who have been dealt the, the deal that they have, have had to live with in America, be able to come forth and bring this day of reckoning, truth-telling moment to America so we can move forward. Secondly, I want to see us repair the damage by supporting reparations, HR 40. It's time this country come to grips with the fact that generations of African-Americans have been denied equal opportunity and parity and justice because of the Black codes, lynching, mass incarceration, Because of segregation, Jim Crow, you name it, it's time to repair the damage, get rid of systemic racism, pass reparations, and the Truth Commission.
1: All right. That was in within the 60 seconds, too. Uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Alicia Garza, thank you for all that you do. uh, And thank you for joining us today uh, at INFORM at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, For viewers, if you would like to watch more virtual programs and support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. Again, I'm Fred Blacklow, the San Francisco Foundation. Pleasure to be with you all both. And that ends our program. Everybody stay safe.
2: You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.